of you may remember the events of the Apollo 13. I do not, but I have seen the Tom Hanks version. Houston, we have a problem. This has become one of those catchphrases, right? When you are trying to handle a crisis coolly, you're trying to be composed in the midst of everything unrattling around you. And if you remember this story, while they're following procedures, a malfunction in one of the oxygen tanks sparks a fire and causes significant damage to the craft. And, and as the things begin to unravel on the instruments, there's a moment when the mission control director, who is Gene Krantz in real life, who's played by Ed Harris, he, he faces everyone complaining to him at one time. They're all telling him this system is down and this system is down and this one. And he has to just calmly quiet them and ask them to report one at a time. And as the movie unfolds, the the mission control faces the challenging position of trying to bring the astronauts home on a crippled craft with limited oxygen and power. And over and over again, it is the director's cool head And decision-making that rallies the brilliant minds of NASA to come up with a plan to get the astronauts home. For Gene, failure was not an option. And his cool response to crisis led them to successfully bringing home the crew of Apollo 13. And the story of the director's response leads me to question myself. Would I be able to respond to a crisis in that way, coolly? calmly diffusing the anxiety of the whole situation. How would I act under such great distress? And as we return to our series through 1 Samuel this morning, I want to remind you where we are in the story. Samuel's dominant theme throughout has been a concern for the issue of human kingship and how they should exercise it. He traces the development of the kingship through Israel's first king, Saul, a king like the nations, who, as they wanted, does resemble that. But as we watched his rise to power, we also watched his downfall. But parallel to that, God selects and anoints a new king. And we see and have watched as he is being prepared for that role. Over and over again, the narrator shows us a contrast between these two types of kings, one after God's own heart and one after the nations, between worldliness and godliness, between a lack of trust and a growing trust in God. And since chapter 18 and David's defeat of Goliath, Saul has grown increasingly jealous of David and has repeatedly sought to put him to death, viewing him as a threat, and surely he was, to Saul's dynasty. Finally, in chapter 27, David fled to the Philistines, thinking it would be safer there than for him to fall into the hands of Saul at some point. But as we saw, this was a bad lapse in judgment that led to the horns of a great dilemma. And several weeks ago, we watched as God providentially led David out of the predicament of having to go out to battle against Israel with the Philistines. And you'll remember that God gave him an out 
by the discomfort that the rest of the Philistine commanders had, even though David had been faithful among them. Meanwhile, Saul is on the other side. David is here with the Philistines. He's thinking, how am I going to get out of this battle? Well, Saul is on the other side facing the Philistine army and thinking, how am I going to get out of this battle? Not knowing what to do, he flees to the witch at Endor, foolishly consulting with someone who was supposed to be banished from the land, who he had banished, so that he could bring up the spirit of of Samuel to ask him what Saul should do. And that fateful meeting proved devastating for Saul as there he learns that he and his sons would die in battle and Israel would be defeated by the Philistines. You see, Saul provides an example of what not to do in the midst of crisis. He panics and he makes a terrible decision. But now David is facing a crisis of his own seemingly out of the frying pan into the fire as one disaster is averted only for David to walk right into another one. But David's response is markedly different than Saul's and revolves around one crucial fact. David strengthened himself in the Lord. As we unpack what that means and trace the events of chapter 3, 30, we see that the whole episode is suffused with the providence of God. God is directing the course of history so that the outcome is favorable to his servant, to someone who trusts in him. And as we see over and over again, the positive example of David of how you respond to crisis, we also learn that God uses these crisis moments to teach us to foster in us dependence on Him. He is developing our character so that in the midst of crises we learn to trust in Him. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30, or it's also printed for you in our bulletin, and we'll read the entirety. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. 
But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. And they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake and of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit was revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to a Malachite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Carathites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me, Or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart." But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of, ne- of the Negev, and Jatir, and Eror, in, in the Sifmoth, and Eshtioma, in Rachel, in the, the cities of the Jarmelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Bor Ashen, in Afka, in the Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask as we come to this portion of your word that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that understand so that we may behold wonders therein. For we pray this in Jesus' name and amen. In our hyper-connected age, we sometimes forget that there was a time when news traveled slowly. 
or not at all. It was not as if one of David's wives called him during the Amalekite raid and said, you need to hurry home because they're burning our city and taking everyone captive. David, undoubtedly ungrateful for God's providing a way of escape for him from that terrible predicament of going to battle against Israel, you can imagine his elation. I've just been saved from this. He's probably jubilant as he returns home, hoping to find his wife and children, and he no longer has to go to battle against Israel. He's saved, only to come to this and see a city burned with fire and everyone gone. And can you imagine the scene? David, he does not have the luxury that we have of the narrator telling us that no one was killed. David doesn't know that. David doesn't know that his wives are alive and his sons and his daughters are okay and everything that they have has been preserved. For all David knows is there is no hope. Everything has been burned and maybe everybody has been killed. Think about how David raided. Did David leave anyone of the Amalekites? No, he didn't. Now, mind you, David is the leader of a band of some pretty rough characters, right? These are not like the most content, easy to get along with, you know, they're just happy, go lucky, whatever. You know, they, they have this pristine outlook of the world. They're, these are the embittered of soul who were in debt, who were in trouble, and they fled to David. Everyone who was in distress, as it says in chapter 22, verse 2, and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. These already troubled souls become even more distressed at the sight of an uninhabited, raised city. I mean, just imagine, they wept. These are warriors They wept until they had no strength left in them. David was not immune from this grief as his own wives were taken. But what was even more distressing, some of them spoke of stoning David. Rene Girard has convincingly shown that when a society's anxiety grows to the point of violence, it will search for a scapegoat. Someone to absorb all of that violence and lead the society to a catharsis. Jesus is, of course, the clearest example of this. Taking all of the anxiety of the Jews at that time and absorbing it as a scapegoat. Here, as a type of Christ, David is in danger of becoming the mob's scapegoat for their grief. But unlike Jesus who was innocent. David is not innocent. David is responsible for causing this distress. He is backsliding by turning from seeking the Lord to take matters into his own hands has led him to this predicament that he's in now. His actions brought about this tragic situation. But at the same time, we know that God is preparing David to be king. 
But not just any king. God is preparing David to be a king in a trusting, obedient relationship with God. So despite this being a particularly distressing trial, it's not God's punishment, but his hand of discipline. And there is a big difference. Punishment is what God will do to the wicked on the last day. It's what the law does to restrain evil. But God's discipline is formative. It forges us to be something. His discipline is for the purpose of bringing out our character of developing Christ-likeness in us. We can see that this is not punishment in the narrator's injunction in verse 12. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. No doubt they're hoping to make a buck off selling them into slavery. But you could imagine a totally different scenario. David certainly didn't leave any survivors when he raided those very same Malachite villages. Remember when he lied to Achish and said, I'm raiding in the Negev of Judah. I'm, I'm raiding in the Negev of this portion of Israel. But really he was raiding in the Amalekite and even Philistine territory. But he left no survivors so there would be no witness of what he was doing. So you can imagine this scenario playing out much differently. This is why we know that God is not punishing David for his backsliding, but he's disciplining him. He is forging his character. He is teaching David to depend on him in the midst of crisis. But he's still superintending this whole event so that no one was killed in the raid. But in a surprising turn, in verse 6, it ends with a stunning testimony of faith. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. David turns from relying on his own strength. He turns from taking things into his own hands and he strengthens himself in God. And we heard language reminiscent of this in chapter 23. When David was desperate, Jonathan came out to him in the wilderness to strengthen his hand. It says in 1 Samuel 23, verse 16, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. Did you notice how Jonathan strengthened David in God. How did he do it? He reminded him of the promises of God. He reminds him that God will be faithful. He has set him as king. Saul knows this. It will be so. David, trust in the Lord. He will accomplish his purposes for you. And so he strengthens him in God by reminding him of the promises of No doubt also recounting all the many times that God had delivered David in the past. This is what we do for one another. We come alongside each other in our discouragements and we say, but brother, remember. Remember what God did to you. But of course, you have to live life close enough to where you know these things. To where you know the ways that God has been at work in your brother or sister in Christ. But it also means that you need to share the ways 
that God has been at work in your life. You need to be able to tell your brother in those situations, God delivered me from this. That way in the future, they can come back and remind you and say, remember, remember how God was faithful to you. And no doubt we see this example of strengthening yourself in God by remembering, by reminding yourself of the promises of God over and over in the Psalms. David, for example, in Psalm 42, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. See, the psalmist cries out in despair, telling himself to remember better times. Maybe David is in the wilderness. Maybe he's not going to the sanctuary to worship God, but he remembers the time when he was. And he encourages and strengthens his heart by reminding himself of what God had done for him in the past. Remember. He's pleading with his soul. Why are you cast down within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. See, David preached the gospel to himself. For God is the gospel. Only in God are the resources for our present situation, the hope to counter despair and the strength to meet the challenge of the day. Only in God is strength found to carry on. Strengthening yourself in the Lord is then turning to His Word in prayer, searching His promises, which all, of course, find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Strengthening yourself in God is the act of casting yourself upon Christ, of resting in Him, and trusting that by His Spirit, He will direct your steps. Trusting that He is indeed working even the kidnapping of your family together for your good. Even the kidnapping of your family. That's what God is saying in this story. David, I am working every situation that you will encounter for your good. Do you trust me? Will you lean on me? Will you depend on me? Or will you find your own way? Having trusted, David's now clear-headed. Do you see that? Do you see after verse 6? David strengthened himself in the Lord. And then David said to Abiathar, the priest, bring me the ephod. Right? We're in the midst of a whole group of people who want to stone David. This is the time where you might not think clearly. But in the midst of crisis, because David strengthened himself in God, he does. God provides an abundant promise to encourage him through the priest. He tells him, All is not lost. Pursue for you shall surely, that's emphasized, you shall surely overtake them and shall surely 
rescue. David, I know that you don't have your family and your city is burned and all the people are gone. Go! I will give them to you. I promise. Do you see what kind of assurance God gives us in the midst of distress, in the midst of our crises? So David sets out with his 600 men. And the narrator adds an important fact that will become more important later. 200 of the men stopped at Besor from exhaustion and couldn't go on. The rest went on with David after the Amalekites. So how does David respond to crisis? He strengthens himself in the Lord. And this, this proves to be the very turning point in David's life. You see, we all go through seasons of backsliding, seasons where the last thing on our minds is God and His will for us, where we're busy taking matters into our own hands. And what separates the faithful from the wicked is that when they realize this, they turn in repentance and they strengthen themselves in the Lord. Saul certainly didn't do this. Saul took matters further into his hands. God's not speaking to me. I'll go get a witch and I'll talk to Samuel through her. I mean, just saying it doesn't sound like a great idea. But God uses these kinds of crises to teach his people to depend on him. When we face them, we have to turn and strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Now, as they proceed after the band of raiders, they come across an Egyptian slave that has been left behind by his master. And here David sets a godly example of how to treat a foreigner. They give him water and food until his strength is recovered before asking him his story. And the young Egyptian slave recounts the details of the raid they had made, saying that his master had left him behind because he fell sick three days ago. Now, presumably he was holding up the already slow advance back home. Remember, the raiders have women and children. They're making their way back to their villages where they or their base of operation, and it's going very slowly. They don't need a sick Egyptian to slow it down even further. And so they leave him behind. And after David asks him if he will take them to where they're going, the young slave says he will if David will swear not to kill him or return him to his master. And this suggests that the young man was looking for an opportunity for freedom and would have been mistreated if he were returned to his master. Having watched my fair share of cowboy and Indian movies, I am sure that David and his men would have been able to track this raiding party with all the women and children across the wilderness. But what a kind providence that the Lord provides a ready guide in this disgruntled Egyptian slave. And it may have taken David much longer to find them had God not been faithful to provide for David in this time of need. Such is the character of God, that even when we find ourselves in a hole that we dug, He not only encourages us in there, but He throws us the rope and pulls us out. I don't know about you, but almost all of the problems that I've got into, I'm the one that got me there. And the Lord is gracious enough to get me out of them. It's astounding to see the faithfulness of God on display 
as his kind providence to David shines even brighter as each scene unfolds. When they come across the Amalekites, they find them spread out in full feast mode. They're enjoying everything. They're dancing and they're celebrating. No doubt, they're taking, they, David and his men take stock of the situation until nightfall. And then just before twilight, David commences his attack, striking them hard until the next evening. And none, none, that is emphasized, escaped except for 400 young men on mounted camels. And this is not just like an interesting fact that's thrown in. This is important, and I want to, high, I want to draw this out. The narrator gives us this number because it's small compared to what David and his men have defeated. No one escaped. Oh, except these 400 boys on camels. That's what the narrator's trying to emphasize. The defeat was very great. Now think with me. we got to backtrack all the way to Besor. Remember that in their hasty pursuit, David left 200 men who were exhausted. They couldn't continue the journey. So pushing on with only 400 men, why is that detail included? Why does the narrator tell us that 200 stayed behind and only 400 went? Is it because later on, David would make a law that all of the, all those, even those who stayed behind, would share in the spoil? I don't think so. I think what the narrator is trying to draw our attention to is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And he will save by few or by many. We're meant to think of Gideon and the winnowing down of his army to 300 men from 22,000. The narrator is highlighting that this victory comes from the Lord. David recognizes this when he highlights it in verse 23. The Lord gave them this spoil. There's more going on here than that. The contrast between Saul and David is on full display. There are two things contrasted here in this episode. First, when Saul was called to go out against the Philistines... When Samuel was delayed in coming in chapter 15, he made a sacrifice out of panic and fear before Samuel got there. And just as he was making the sacrifice, Samuel shows up and tells him that God would take the kingdom from him and give it to his neighbor for this breach of faith. Saul did not look at the situation with eyes of faith. He saw an enemy that was larger than him, and he succumbed to his fears. He did not believe that the Lord would deliver by few or by many. He did not trust in God to deliver him. But secondly, you may recall when Saul went to battle against the Amalekites in chapter 15, he sinned greatly, failing to do all that God had commanded him. He spared the best of the animals and kept the king alive. Remember that God had told them, go and annihilate, utterly wipe out. That's what devote to destruction means. These people are to be consecrated to me. Nothing is to remain. It's all devoted to me. You don't keep any of the spoil from the Amalekites. That's the picture. But Saul didn't do that. He kept the best for himself. 
But David is proving to be a king after God's own heart. I find so much encouragement here. David is a man with feet of clay. He has failed by seeking refuge among the Philistines. And yet, what redeems him? Well, of God, of course. But but what does God require of David? What does he require of any of us? Perfection? Does God require of us that we be perfect? Could you? If that was the requirement, could any of you meet it? Don't raise your hand. No. God requires repentance and humility. He requires only that we acknowledge when we are wrong and then we turn to him. God takes David where he is, not where he should be. He works with the grain of David's sin to produce his masterpiece, an ideal king whose trust in God has been tempered in the fires of adversity and comes forth strong. This is the character of the God who calls you into fellowship with him. He calls you to follow an even greater ideal than David. David's son, Jesus. We saw on Palm Sunday the kind of king that Jesus is. A humble and and self-emptying king. One who came to serve and not to be served. One who, after his resurrection, sat Peter down at the fire and said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, "You, you know I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Three times Jesus does this, taking Peter back to those moments before the rooster crowed when Peter denied the Lord three times. Jesus is not holding this grievous sin against Peter. He's forgiving him, but not just forgiving him, but he's calling him to continue in ministry. This would not go over well in a presbytery exam. Uh, Have you ever denied Jesus? disqualified but that's not how Jesus responded to Peter Peter do you love me you know I do three times reminding him of his sin and that's the very heart of God there's another side to his love as seen in Saul he's still slow to anger And Saul still has ample opportunities to turn to the Lord and repent. Sometimes it seems like he does, but it's surface level. It's worldly sorrow. It's not over offending a holy God, but at having the kingdom taken from him. Of having his dynasty end. Which are you? Have you repented of trusting God? God to deliver you like David does? Or are you like Saul, worried about the numbers and lacking faith, whose repentance is contrived and unconvincing? God may be placing you in a crisis to show you just how far off base you are. And the correct response is not to go farther, but to turn in repentance, to acknowledge your failings, and to trust again in in Christ. God uses these crises to teach us to depend on him. The narrator sets up the third and the final contrast as David returns with all the people and plunder he rescued from the Amalekites. 
And given the character of the people David is leading, it's not surprising that as they approach the 200 men left behind with the baggage, they begin to grumble and criticize, having recovered not merely all the people of Ziklag, but also all the plunder of all the other cities that the Amalekites had raided. The Philistine cities and other cities. And it stands to reason there, there was plenty of spoil to go around. But it is moments like these when greed seizes an opportunity, making it relatively easy at that moment to look down on a brother. Somebody who maybe days before you would have went out to battle with, you would have given your very life for. But now you can easily despise them and look down on them because you have all this stuff in your hands. It seems only fair to the rabble that those too tired to fight in the battle should not share in the spoil. Just give them their wives and children and let them go. Remember, these men lost not just their families, but their entire houses were burned to the ground. They lost all of their stuff, everything to care for their families. They have nothing. These men just want to say, just take your wives and kids and go. I, I was thinking of the Menchies and, and the fire that they endure, endured and the loss of all their things. I mean, how much worse would that have been if they didn't have insurance? If they didn't have the Christian charity of the community to come alongside of them? Think about the Amish. What happens when a barn burns down? the whole community rallies together to rebuild a new barn. Not at the cost of the one who lost the barn. Where does that come from? That comes from this statute that David makes. He says, no, greed is insidious. It's an insidious sin that Paul links with idolatry. Why? Because greed looks at stuff as being more important than God. Greed will destroy relationships. It destroys businesses and nations. And it's at the root of war and tyranny. Greed is corrosive and it rots away at a person's core. For it can never be satisfied. For greed, it's never enough. The Bible condemns greed and paints the greedy as grasping and petty. And this is on full display in David's ruthless band of malcontents. They don't think those who stayed behind should have any share in the plunder. And notice what assumption is motivating that. What's driving that? They thought that it was their abilities, their strength, their wisdom, their courage that overcame the Amalekites. It was because of them that they had victory. But David speaks otherwise when he corrects them in verse 23. And David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. You didn't get it. The Lord gave it to you. He has preserved us. He has given this band into our hands. To God belongs the victory. This narcissistic attitude glories in me. I did it. And I want to keep the spoil for myself. I don't have time to read it, but you'll remember the the story of Nebuchadnezzar. As he stands on the edge of his castle and he looks out over Babylon. He says, look what I made. 
Look what I did. Look at all the glory that I've gotten for myself. And God strikes him down and said, you're going to be like an ox. You're going to eat grass like an ox. And you're going to crawl on your hands and knees until you learn to give glory to the Almighty God. See, David recognizes that it is because of the Lord that they have won this great victory and the spoil belongs to all of the people. And so he makes a statute that from then on, it didn't matter if you were in the rear or if you went out to battle, you were included in the spoil. You see, David distinguishes himself here from Saul yet again because he, instead of listening to the people, he leads them. Remember the excuse Saul gave Samuel when he returned from fighting with the Amalekites? Samuel said to him, what is the sound of bleeding I hear? Remember that he was to utterly devote the Amalekites to destruction, leaving nothing. But listen to Saul's response. This is in chapter 15, verse 15. He says, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Does the king, a public person who is to take responsibility for everything that happens in Israel, does he take responsibility? No, he says the people, they wanted to do it. I just threw them a bone. I felt bad for them. You know, so it's the people they've sinned. I'm innocent. I'm just a leader here. What can I do against this rabble? But how does David respond? No, we will not do this thing in Israel because God himself is the one who has won this victory. David doesn't listen to the people. David leads the people. Saul has repeatedly not been a leader, but David models godly leadership and he takes considerable risk to do so, by the way. You could have seen them easily turning on David. These are the same people who just wanted to stone him. Why would they not say, we're not following this guy, we're keeping the spoil. Off with David. Coup and, you know, they're just a band of discontents. David trusts in the Lord. And he leads and guides the people. And this enables him not only to teach the people proper neighbor love, but also to hold on to the plunder lightly. David not only divides the spoil among his army, but he also gives gifts to his friends, to the people of Judah. And this is not only a wise political move, but it's, it's Christ-like. This is what Jesus did when Paul says in Ephesians 4.8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. When Jesus rose in victory from the grave and ascended in triumph over sin and death to his father, he gave liberally of the spoils. See, we've been traveling through the wilderness with David for quite some time, and it's been up and down, and it's been on the edge of your seat kind of experience. And sometimes God's deliverance came at the very last moment. But through it all, God was using each crisis to develop David's character, to teach him to depend on God and preparing him to be king. A king not like the nations, but like God himself. And now David is ready He will face many more challenges, but this is the last episode in 1 Samuel that includes him. 
David has shown us not merely an ideal to aim for in our own attitude and relationship with God. He showed us Christ. For it is great David's greater son, Jesus, who is the captain of our faith and our commander-in-chief, whose victory has not just conquered the Amalekites, but conquered death and brought us life and who we, we wait for with hopeful expectation. You see, we're bringing this series to a close. We're not going to pick up with Second Samuel. We'll take a break for a while. I, I don't want you to miss what David is showing us. You will face crises every day. What are you going to do with those? How are you going to respond? Will you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Will you trust and depend on him? Or will you follow the path of Saul? Will you make your own way? David sets a godly example of what it looks like to follow Christ. To be strengthened is to be strengthened in Christ. To remind ourselves that our life is hid with him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're grateful for this journey of walking with David in the wilderness as we chart our own course as we sojourn as foreigners in a strange land, waiting for the home whose builder is God. And we face the same kinds of temptations and trials to go our own way, to do our own thing, to chart our own course, to depend on ourselves. And yet through it all, we have seen that you are calling us to depend on Christ, to rest and to trust in him and to strengthen ourselves in the promises of God. We ask, Father, that in our times of crisis, we would respond in the same way. Work that kind of faith in us, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.